Quick message before we get into the uh, Banking with Life episode. We have a live event coming up in October 2023, downtown Fort Worth, Texas. I'm going to be speaking. Ryan Griggs will be speaking. This will be the second event that we've held. We did one last year in uh, October as well. We're going to have uh, some unnamed special guests. And Mr. Griggs, why aren't we naming the special guests? Oh, you know, it's it's a it's a private it's a private event for clients only, and these are people who they don't need their names blasted around the internet. Uh, but our people need to hear from them. Uh, listen, the industry. I'm, when I say industry. When it comes to the infinite banking concept, becoming your own banker, these individuals understand the infinite banking concept. One is at the helm of a large life insurance company who understands banking. Okay. And then the other is uh, you'll be surprised who they are. I'm just telling you. And you won't find these two individuals in a room talking anywhere across the country under any general circumstances so they're really not to be missed in my opinion there'll be a continental breakfast uh, lunch an after party and a a room full of people who practice the infinite banking concept that are actually doing this and have been doing this these are not all new people that first time they've ever had exposure no these are practitioners with a little p that are actually doing it and you'll have the opportunity to meet them i don't know where else you can go in the country and meet a room full of people who are practicing the infinite banking concept yeah not in this way neither do i october 21st 8 30 in the morning to 5 p.m downtown fort worth clients only you'll receive an email uh, from one of our offices with information to or, and a link to purchase a ticket guests approved guests are welcome uh, further information on the website again October 21st 2023 see you there be there in this episode Ryan and I discuss premium deposit funds highlights of a recent article of his on the subject and then we tie it all up with financial marketing we had fun and hope you enjoy listening Welcome to the Bank of Life Podcast. I'm your host, James Nethery. I'm your co-host, Ryan Griggs. Hey, we've already been having a lot of fun here, shooting some promos for the live event that's coming up in October 2023, Saturday the 21st, 8.30 to 5. It's a it's an event that you should not miss. So look for the promos. You'll get all the details. Look for the emails. And if you're a client, you should be receiving the emails either from my office or Mr. Griggs' office. Um, all right, Griggs, Mr. Griggs. What what do you, what have you got on your agenda? You have such a long drive. A new homeowner here, might I say, who moved about ten or fifteen minutes further away, so the longer the drive got longer. So you have more time to think about what you want to uh, talk about once you get here. Uh yes. Um, <laughs> not that I needed it, but uh, I wrote an article recently uh, about seventy one hundred words. I should pretty much stop doing this. It should have been a book chapter, but that's okay. Uh, on premium deposit funds. You know, I have a case going in underwriting right now, individual who happened to sell a business, large chunk of change from the sale of that business, wants to become his own banker, wants to use some of, not all, some importantly, some of, not all, of the proceeds from the sale of that business to help start the infinite banking concept and in this particular case for all sorts of reasons we'll get into or we can get into what's called a premium deposit fund rider or a pdf rider was a really good fit 
Um, and, you know, so application submitted, going through underwriting. And, you know, I had, of course, built the case out. I kind of, I see what, how it illustrates, you know, see the effect. And it's like, you know, reflecting on just the mechanics, you know, one-time payment and then all these results that come. And like, I wonder if other people know much about this. So, and of course, I don't expect them, not from an infinite banking perspective, but I just thought maybe that there would be something from the companies. Just about PDFs in general. About a PDF writer in general. So I go, I just, I do a pretty thorough Google online search and can't find anything. I mean, there, I think I found like a blog from uh, maybe like a financial attorney that where the, the word was mentioned, but there was nothing substantive. And I thought, well, that's a shame. So I went and wrote this whole essay, 7,100 words. Medium says it's a 28-minute read. I know it's not short, clippy. I'm a slow reader. It didn't take me 28 minutes to read it. Oh, perfect. (laughs) So maybe other medium readers are slow. (laughs) (laughs) I doubt it. But um, yeah, so that... I don't know. I hope that has, and if there's an example, oh my God, oh, I know everybody, they'll show me the numbers, right? Need examples. So there's some bar charts in there that show the effect over time on an annual basis of cash value growth relative to premium. And, you know, I'll, I'm interested to know when and if you, recently you've used these on a case. Uh, I don't use them a lot. And I explain in the article, I think, why that is. There's not, I mean, I make my clients aware of what they are in the process, but there's not much, there there isn't anything out there to tell people about it before getting into an advisory process. And so the use case for them is just, we just don't know about it. People don't talk about it. And then we also don't have the, my view is we don't the the framework one would need to understand even the vocabulary in order to justify the use case isn't there either right so this i think uh, generally speaking there could be other cases but generally speaking a premium deposit fund is a can be a good solution where we want to move a large chunk of change that could be a windfall it could be inheritance it could be the proceeds from the sale of a business or property or what accumulated savings that you built up over 20 years right you have a large chunk of change uh what i'll refer broadly to as accumulated financial value or accumulated financial resources and you want to utilize that to implement the infinite banking concept and become your own banker and in particular acquire a policy or policies do more than one uh, in a non-MAC fashion, right? And so the industry, and then there's background in there, right? The industry has their sort of narrative conventional view of what a PDF is and what the use case would be. And then there's the IBC capital cash value oriented, uh, rationale for why one would use it. Um, so we can get into what a PDF is if you want to, but uh, you know um, we we can, and that really could be a whole episode on its own. And I think there, look, number one, first off, let me say that it's a very well written article, and I'm appreciative. I've already sent like five people there. I'm like, are you friends oh, with you. Ryan, or just go to the Facebook. That's where I've seen it. You know, go to his Medium blog, and uh, you know, so it is well written. And and I was 
you know, kind of grimacing a little. I know. With the charts. <laughs> too transparent. Huh? <laughs> too transparent. No, no, no. Which About design and... Well, I the reason is, yeah, number one, well, no. I People have a tendency... Yeah. to read a good article like that. And there's a lot of background information in there. It's a very good article just beyond the PDF and the and the charts, right? Which I'm not a post charts. I'm a visual learner. You know, I'm I'm audible, kinesthetic, you know, um, visual. It was a great article, good charts. But then you get into specifics, some specifics, right? The the case, the structure, and then the chart keeps going, which is fine. Um, but where I grimaced is people read things like that and it's like, oh, well, this is the way I do it. This is what I should do. That was a very hyper specific case, yeah. which also informs uh, that not every case is the same. If you take the time to do a hyper specific specific uh, solution for an individual and it happens to use a PDF or whatever it happens to use, and that was the best solution for them. Mm-hmm. Right. That is not to say that every case should use a PDF. And then there are various PDFs. There's no information in general in the big wide world about PDFs. So I think you have a couple more articles in front of you. You know, talk about a chapter of a, of a book or an addendum to your book or maybe part of the next two or three books that you're going to yeah. write. Because um, that should more. be fleshed out. There's so much there. Yeah. Um, so I thought it was a great article. And I've talked Thank about you. it. <laughs> and, you know, historically, um, you know, in my experience back in the day, most of the companies, the, the life insurance companies have a premium deposit fund. You know, they don't want the policy to lapse. So here, put the money here before you spend it to pay a future premium or whatever their rationale is. Yeah. Right. But they're all very specific and they're all very different. You know, the particular company that you reference has two different types of PDFs. Uh-huh. Right. And then another company may have two different PDFs or one PDF and they all function a little bit differently. Yeah. And you really got into the detail of, of uh, the uh, discounted interest equivalent. <laughs> yeah. Compounded interest equivalent. Yeah, compounded. Yeah. There you go. Um, yeah, so let, I mean, let me back up. So a premium deposit fund, for those who don't know, is the way I describe it is as a way station or a staging ground for future premium. Right? This is a separate fund, right? It's a premium deposit fund. So it's not an account. Uh, you know, there's a tendency to describe it that way. You call it what you want. It's a separate fund in the form of a rider on a policy into which one can pay some year's worth of future premium, right? So it's a staging ground for future premium. You send the company money, they hold on to it. The company, you know, a mutual life insurance company, which if you're working with the kind that we talk about, right, been around for a long time, uh, strong, consecutive, you know, 100 plus year dividend payment history, right? So the, the, the value of the fund, your principal is guaranteed by the company. Uh, so it's a very safe, allocation and then there's some financial benefit uh that companies apply that they offer uh if you were to use a premium deposit fund right okay so i put some money in the premium deposit fund it's going to pay a scheduled premium in the future at a future policy date and i get a benefit for that right the particular case that i discuss in the medium article uh, the the form, the particular mechanism of financial benefit is a compounded interest equivalent discount. 
I know, bunch of words. It basically means that a dollar of premium deposit fund money will pay more than a dollar of scheduled premium in the future. Right? And there's a certain percentage. Uh, let's say it, 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 in this particular case, it happens to be 5%. So a dollar of premium deposit fund money will pay a dollar and five cents of premium in the future. That five cent margin is treated as interest, hence interest equivalent, but it isn't technically interest, right? The value of the fund doesn't change. It's just that when the money comes out to pay premium, it does so in a discounted fashion. It buys more premium, pays more premium than must come out of the fund. That margin is treated as interest for income tax purposes. So we're not getting around Uncle Sam here, right? There's going to be interest declared. You're going to get a form from the company that tells you how much premium got paid that didn't come out of the fund that's attributable to the discount. So it's treated as interest and it's compounded, right? So in year two or at the beginning of policy year three, when it comes time for the second round of money to come out of the PDF to pay scheduled premium, a dollar of those PDF funds, a dollar of that PDF money will pay more than a dollar and five cents. It's as if the amount that comes out of the premium deposit fund has grown at what would have been 5% interest compounded annually, right, for two years. So it's a the the magnitude of the discount, the effect of the discount compounds over time. Hence, compounded interest equivalent discount. That's the way this particular premium deposit fund works. But in talking to you, because there's all these other companies and you've been around a couple more years than I have, and uh, I was trying to beat me up on my age. <laughs> I got to take what I can get here. Uh, you know, other companies. Notice I don't beat him up on his age. Right? <laughs> in the sixties and new forties, so I'm I'm enjoying eighty five. No, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> uh, okay, have fun. Have fun. Uh, so other companies have premium deposit funds, and you know, there's a dividend allocation called hold at interest where you can tell the company, look, don't send the dividend to me. Don't put the dividend back into the policy as PUA. Instead, put the dividend in a separate account where it will generate taxable interest. Hence, a dividend election, hold at interest. And to my mind, I'm like, that would be like a simple way to do a premium deposit fund, right? Just put some money in the separate account, treat it as interest bearing. The actual balance does grow. And in the future, it's a one for one when you take money from the PDF I'm and pay a premium. Yeah. But I mean, it, I get it. And hence the article, you know, I mean, well written with the graphs um, because it it's it's not complex. It's very specific. Um, I'd rather just pay a premium. And if I... If I'm going to have money for a future premium, which I do, sitting in somebody's brick and mortar bank, I'd rather have it into it's the a, PDF. That is a really great point, and it speaks to why I don't often use them. Like in my in my opinion, the rationale for premium, and it's the same reason I don't like this overfunded structure. <laughs> right, you can't overfund something. There's a limit. You can't go over it. Right. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a limit. I mean. But there's these guys online who will talk about, you know, pay a hundred grand in year one yeah. in an actual premium, that's overfunding, and then in year two and beyond, pay five grand or ten grand, right? Very low. You know, the the, the idea of a big one time payment and very little thereafter, I don't like it either. But you're you're very, I, I totally agree that it would be better 
to pay actual premium in the current policy year than to set aside money to pay premium in the future. Because between now and then, ostensibly, there's going to be other incoming cash flow. That money, too, needs a place to go. It needs to be used as premium. And so you're essentially underbuilding. Right. If you have a structure where, yeah, you're gonna, you're or overbuilding, uh, as you mentioned a minute ago, oh, pay the overfunding thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I agree. So I think the use case for a premium deposit fund is quite narrow. It's really like yeah. this, like this uh, situation, but again, narrow, but legitimate. There can be cases. Yeah, absolutely. Where, and maybe, it, maybe I don't want to. Maybe I don't even want to. Uh, like. Uh, uh, as an example, just in you know personal planning or financial planning, retirement planning, whatever, you know, maybe I don't want, I don't want to, I don't want to deal with future premium payments. I have it, I want it gone. Yeah, you know, and so the, the guru says, well, put it in the market, or well, put it into an annuity, you know, one and done, set it and forget it, kind of a thing. That as an alternative is tough to beat, in my opinion, right? But if I'm practicing banking. And maybe that's not the only policy that I have, too, right? right? Maybe yeah. that I've received a lump sum of money and I do the premium deposit fund. Maybe I don't, but maybe I'm paying premium elsewhere. I want every dollar that I can wrap my mind around being exposed to the dividend. I appreciate the uh, the uh, compounded discount uh you know, interest rate equivalent, because I thought that was you coming up with that terminology to convey what is happening is outstanding. I mean, because you didn't just wake up one morning and write that article, although he can bust out an article in like 20 seconds flat, no question. Um, you dug into that, right? Yeah. And the terminology, I've never read that terminology That's anywhere. No, that, so that was outstanding terminology that you won't find in a contract or in the writer. Um, but that is more accurate than, oh, yeah, you just get a 5% interest rate. Yeah. And so that triggers a, a, a certain thinking. I'm going to get a 5% interest rate. Okay, well, you know, the banks are paying four and a half now, right? Why, right. Would, I, why would I do that? Exactly. I can and do then, math. Yeah, bigger numbers. Right, and, yeah. if I, and, and the premium deposit funds go over various years. There's different rules for each premium deposit fund between the companies and they're all different um so i'm just telling you it's a very good article it was a very good article um like i said i've referred a lot of people to it um the the creating that kind of language to convey what's going on is very hyper specific but well worth wrapping your mind around and i think there's other work to be added to that on the premium deposit fund and then if you're going to use cases you know there's various examples and and so and i'm bringing that up reiterating what i said because i'm telling you every you're going to melt down your medium blog now because people are going to go and you should go and listen to it half of them will be agents to figure out how to spell pdf i digress <laughs> um i love you agents i'm you know i'm not talking about you if you're consistently listening to learn i'm talking about the other guys that are you know uh i'm being positive okay the production board right that you know, we're all busy. We all have a lot of, to do, but that's one, another work that I think should be continued and expanded upon. And then I want to tie that into, I have a production board as well, you know, AV modules and examples and case studies. And one of them is going to be specifically on the high PUA, not necessarily the high PUA in the first year, 
that I'm talking about right now, but I had a conversation a couple of weeks ago, and I'm going to round this out with a point on the production board. This is on my production board. That should be on your production board because it doesn't exist anywhere, right? And on my production board, this this guy calls out of the blue, emails, and he says, oh, James, you know, I've done this and this. I found you. And everything that, or a lot of things that you talk about is exactly what I've done. And I see that I want to do something different, right? And I'm specifically talking in his case about a 90-10 design. So in his particular case, a lot of things has changed, not for the good, but because of what he did, he's now in a position that he very limited on how he can correct it, right? But you... You go through what you can do and what you, the minor adjustments that you can make as a policy owner on a 90-10 jank policy, you should be aware of. So you can go or consider making those adjustments to better yourself and better your, uh, your heirs. Right. Okay. Production board. Get it on your production board. Yes, sir. Uh, but you know, I, part of what led to wanting to do that was a conversation you and I had. You had a different case. I won't go too far into detail, but um, this kind of goes outside of just IBC per se. Um, but it was the idea that the the regulation and the compliance and the paperwork around annuity <laughs> sales is just extreme. And I mean, my, and it occurs to me too, like, there's a huge annuity market out there. Uh, and the way annuities are treated from a tax perspective is what we deliberately, intentionally all day try to avoid in IBC. Yeah. Like modified endowment contract tax status is essentially the same as as what the tax status is always on annuities. Right. And then, you know, there's a death benefit. And I mentioned some of this in the article. You know, there's... A, in most cases, but not all in annuities, there's a death benefit. But really, the and it's not a death benefit. It's really just an account balance that transfers to a beneficiary. Mm-hmm. It's a one-for-one type thing. If there's money left over when the annuitant passes, it goes to somebody. Occasionally, there can be just straight life where once you go, there is no more. There's not, no value to transfer. And that anyway. right there, that's a basic understanding of the all-American individual. They don't talk about annuities until they get close to retirement, and then everybody wants to sell them an annuity. Um, and I think there's a place for annuities. I'm not bashing annuities, but most people, that's their understanding. Mm-hmm. I put money in. I'm going to take a monthly income, and when I die, it's all gone. Um, and there are annuities like that, but they're used for very specific cases. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, but then, too, like all the variable annuities, I put a hundred thousand in. The market went down. Now it's only worth fifty. But if I die, it's going to pay out a hundred because you're paying a premium for a death benefit. So there, are, there, mm-hmm. you can buy the death benefit on some, you know, annuities. But and, and then you just going down that road beyond the regulation, the word annuity, what does that even mean? Is it a contract? Is it, you know, an equal periodic payment? Mm. You know, there's a lot of nuance in the language of annuities. And then when you get into the financial world, it's so polarized. It's, it's kind of like life insurance or infinite banking sure. or term and permanent or investments against, you know, annuities. It's so polarized. The guy who sells annuities and that's what he does, he loves them. The guy who sells life insurance, whatever, you know, estate planning or whatever, he loves them. The guy in the market loves them. Okay, perfect. You know, I'm I'm a loving guy too, but to exclude something, right, like annuity, because there's not clarity, 
around the language or even the mechanics of it yeah um is is not good it's the same as excluding you know dividend paying whole life structured correctly excluding that i mean you i don't know if you talked about it on your 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 medium blog or we discussed it but uh you know you, you go to a restaurant somewhere and the financial guru over there next to you ah. just starts screaming about how whole life you a dummy you never use whole life or anything you know it's I'm glad you're passionate in your ignorance. That's great. <laughs> but, you know, don't contaminate other people. Yeah. No, I want to get to that in a moment. But to round, <laughs> to round out the annuity I'm thing. I'm queuing you up, sir. No, no. It's good. I mean, and I think the idea of a contractually guaranteed income at some point in time is a tremendous, often a tremendous improvement over depending on, upon something that's market correlated. No question. I'm, that's fine. You know, I, I'm, not, I'm not bashing annuities for the sake of it either. It's just that the tax status is inferior and there's no yes. loan provision. Right. Well, and, too, and let me continue on that. In, in the financial world, not only do they love whatever they promote or what have you, they don't want to learn about life insurance if you're an annuity producer. Mm. You don't want to learn about life. You don't want to have your clients go through underwriting. You know, I, I send premium. That's what it would be called. Anytime you send money to a life insurance company, whether it's a life insurance or an annuity, it's premium or a loan repayment in the case of infinite banking. Okay, so you send the premium to the life insurance company with the annuity, and it goes through suitability, right? Which is not not onerous, right? It's egregious in and of itself, but it's nothing like underwriting for life insurance. You know, where you can go through suitability with an annuity in a week or two weeks. Life insurance it may take six or eight weeks, right? And the annuity salesman he needs to get paid now. He already yeah, spent the other, money. Other way around. What uh, suitability with insurance is often more streamlined than it is with annuities. Yeah, but then, but yeah. then I'm talking about the health underwriting with life oh, insurance. I, oh, okay, I see what you mean. Oh, yeah, no, the suitability with life insurance, is, it's getting, you know, I have my own opinions of that. Yeah. Um, the the, the mantra, in as far as I can tell, in conventional finance is that, you know, annuities are evil because they're illiquid. And if you start one and want to quit, there's a big old surrender charge and you're going to fleece the consumer. And so the whole regulatory perspective is to examine whether or not you, stupid client, you know, have enough liquidity to properly, wisely buy this annuity. Yeah, and the insurance agent got a great big commission taking advantage of the little old gray-haired ladies. Yeah, you know, you can pour all your money into an over-leveraged market-correlated account that you want. Online in 20 minutes, tops. have to check your intelligence for that, but if you want to buy an annuity... Then we got to make sure you go through this liquidity examination, essentially yeah. interrogation, uh, inquisition. We could go on, but uh, <laughs> inquisition, yeah, pretty. But accurate. I mean, major thing from like an infinite banking type perspective. But just the idea of being able to take cash flow without interrupting the ongoing growth. If we suppose that there is ongoing ongoing growth in the underlying as value, underlying asset value, that's a huge deal, right? No loan provision on an annuity, period. Uh, but there isn't and not bashing annuities, but I think you compare to like properly built IBC style whole life potentially with a PDF writer. That's going to be hard to be. And in this in this guy's case, you know, age and I, you know, fudge the numbers a bit for I don't want to put all of his stuff out there on blast, but um, a, approximately age 50. You know, had this, the business he sold was happens to be a trades business. It was about $2 million that went to <clears throat> the company to pay, both pay the first year premium and the rest will go into a premium deposit fund. And so it's going to pay uh, the annual premium for 10 years. In this case, right, you can have, you can 
all of this can be changed. This is just one example. But the result uh, was that about, I think it was 467 grand over the 10 year period. $467,000. We're not talking about chump change. Right. Basically, almost 25%. What was the original premium? Sorry. Uh, the, the, so the, the initial the, inflow was 2 million, 2 million. Yeah. Okay. 2 and, million, 400 and, and that's a lot of money. Well, and I'm saying over the 10 year period, yeah. 467 or thousand or so of premium got paid that he didn't put in the fund. All right. So 2.46 million or whatever in premium got paid over a 10 year period. I thought it was 469, but I'm out of misread. He only put in 2 million up front. So, a that was the effect of this compounded discount. I mean, that's a lot of premium, almost a half a million dollars in premium that got paid because of this discount that he didn't put there. <clears throat> and then if you think, okay, well, what, and I dedicate a bit, pretty big part of the essay or article to this, it's like, what else would you do with a big windfall from the sale of a business? You know, I was telling you earlier about this friend of internet entrepreneur guy builds online social media platform, sells sells off the basically the subscriber or the marketing base to some other company and they pay astonishing amounts of money for it it's like what else would somebody do with that big chunk of change like that what do you do you know and there there's a whole that segment of the market is just not served right they're they're hounded by the brokers and the people who want to who want your capital under their management, right? But to secure a substantial windfall, and again, sale of the business, but inheritance, you know, sale of whatever, uh, what would, what should one do with it? And so I kind of make the case that, going back to the distinction between capitalization and investment, you should start capitalizing. That, that should serve as seed funding for your own personal monetary system. And there will be, there absolutely is a challenge in designing the that policy to accept that large amount potentially in the form of a pdf while also accounting for the likelihood that you're gonna have other cash flow in the future and it needs to be paid in premium too yeah right so how do you square both of those right so in this particular case you know the initial two million is going to cover the first 10 years worth of premium but the policy is designed such that once that initial pdf writer balance is exhausted he can keep paying premium it could himself. be designed yours was designed that way right right yeah i'm, I'm certainly not saying it's always going to be this way but the way well, and, I, I'm, and i'm pointing that out because yeah. you know all these companies have quote unquote 10 pay policies they're, they're, they're 10 pay you cannot pay a premium in the 11th year mm-hmm. so it's really uber easy for the agent and agent not any particular agent but a agent to an agent to say oh well you got two million dollars we'll just put it in a 10 pay so it's one and done right right two million into the premium deposit fund Paid out over 10 years, and it's a 10-year pay policy. It's really easy. Have the company build it, sign here. Yeah. yeah. I, so I'm, I'm just pointing that out where uh, it just speaks to the individual details of a case, every case. And I know your case is different than mine. I suffer from my cases different. I'm just saying your circumstances are, we're all different. And thank God, right? Um to take the time to design a plan 
that meets their needs, their goals, their desires, their check boxes. You know, what are they doing now? What are they going to do in the future? What can they control? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, because look, maybe maybe a ten pay policy is great for someone. Right. Uh, sure. uh, maybe it is. You know, I mean, Nelson bought him. Uh, you didn't have the unstructured PUA when he was bought him. And uh, then when he, uh, I don't want to, I don't continue there, but there could be a place for 10 pay, but not if you're 39 years old and your income's going up. You don't want to pay a premium at your, at age 59 or 49 if you're a 39 year old. Right. That's crazy. So that's a very nuanced point. I totally, yeah. It's the, I mean, it's the difference between obligation and option or obligation and right or authority or capacity, right? And yeah. this was a sticking point with my client's wife. And we did, you know, either group or three-way calls if they were in different locations all throughout. And, you know, big chunk of change, worked hard on this business, selling the business, big life event, again, yeah. in their fifth, yeah. you know, early 50s. So this is a seminal moment. And, you know, the, as is often the case, one of two spouses may be driving the conversation, you know, more interested, reading more, listening more, yeah. this kind of stuff. And so in this case, the client whose name I'll refer to as Dave, Dave was, you know, the one very enthusiastic about, about IBC and, you know, wanting to help his wife understand more and more what we were doing. And so there was some initial skepticism from her about this idea of, the potential for premiums to be paid after the exhaustion of the PDF rider. She may right? not want to pay them. May not want to pay them. Yeah, you know, so the idea, okay, two million is gonna cover, you know, it's the idea that I don't wanna do anything beyond that or be required to do anything beyond yeah. that, you know, or be committing myself to do anything beyond that. And so I sh- showed them that it, to essentially illustrate this difference between capacity and obligation, it's like, no, no, I want to build out a structure so that if you want to, if you're willing and able to continue to pay premium and kind of think you will be, but setting that aside, if you're willing and able to, then you have the right to continue. I don't think you covered that in the article, but when I was referring earlier, you covered a lot of foundational, fundamental uh, things in there broadly beyond just the PDF fund. Yeah, a right. lot of it, things get baked in. It's which, like hard which, to, so, and I know I very I speak very broadly, but I've heard you say before. Well, the canvas is big, so you know. <laughs> paint with a broad brush. Yeah. <clears throat> um, the future is unknown. Yeah, you know, nobody wants. Who wants to make a commitment that they can't fulfill? I'm sure there's some out there. I'm not. Most my, my clients are not. Your right. clients are not. No. I mean, you don't want to make a commitment that you can't fulfill. You don't know that you can can fulfill it. So. If the future is unknown, and it is, you don't know. He doesn't know. I don't know. No one knows what's going to happen, what what their ability, desires, or their position in, in the financially is going to be in the 11th year. Mm-hmm. So if I have the right to pay a premium, and oh my gosh, look at the action of the policy on the 11th premium, <laughs> you know, and, and I'm not isolating that out where there's, that's the only year that any good action comes from a premium payment at all. I'm not saying that at all. If you just look at the uh, action that occurs on the eleventh year, I'm sure they'll want to pay a premium. Yes, and that if they can, right? and that is so uh, poorly understood, right? The idea that we say it and it sounds glib, or maybe it sounds cliche, or something about it maybe doesn't penetrate, but. The longer you go out in the life cycle of a properly designed policy, the easier and easier those premium payments become. Like it's why wouldn't you want to pay? And I was going to pull up this particular 
pull up the article and, and refer to this year 11 thing that we're mentioning. But uh, in year 11, had he continued to pay the premium, uh, which was the maximum payable was 246,667. So nearly 250 grand in total annual premium. And had he continued to pay it, gosh, oh, a long article. Um, I thought I was a slow the, reader. The increase in cash value in that year was well over the what the annual maximum premium would have, would have been. I think it was like a 1.4 factor. Like if I have the right to pay premium of X dollars and have the result be an increase in the value of the asset, an increase in the cash value of 1.4 X, it's like, why wouldn't I do that? If I had a asset right now that I could pay a hundred grand in and watch the value, all of which I can get to by policy loan when I want, if I want to use for what I want. And the value of the asset was going to go up by 140,000. And I can do that every year for the next 20 years. The factor goes up. Then the number changes and the growth goes every year. Why wouldn't I do that? Right. So the result here with the PDF is that the PDF essentially supports us through that initial illiquidity period. And it gets to it gets you to a point where now your out of pocket premiums in a certain year will have the uh, offsetting effect, the other the, the, the simultaneous will have the simultaneous effect. Of a cash of cash value growth that's well in excess of the premium. Well, he's probably not going to have any money. You know, he's been so successful, built a successful business, had all the employees, had all the customers, and and then he sells it for hopefully a beautiful profit, it's a substantial amount of money. And this is just some of the proceeds, some of the net proceeds. So yeah, he'll probably just be sitting on a beach somewhere, you know, receiving mailbox money right in the eleventh year. Um, and I make fun of that because it is part of the short-term thinking that we all suffer from. Yeah, you know, it's part of Parkinson's law. It's the thinking, it, hence the the big monstrosity first-year premiums. You're contorting the structure of a policy to make that happen. Um, I get it. Nobody wants to to be obligated in the future perfect you can solve for that with a properly designed policy structure right maybe i don't want to pay in the 11th year maybe i don't have the capital to pay a premium in the 11th year maybe there's not a lender on the face of the earth that would lend me money to pay a premium to see a 1.4 increase in the passage of time 12 months Right. Maybe after paying all of that premium to the life insurance company, I spent it all. I didn't even have enough reserves in cash value to collateralize for that premium. Right. And now hear me, please. I am not talking about stacking, laddering policies and, you know, kind of I want to bring that up because, you know, OK, I discovered TikTok, uh, you know, several months ago, but now it's stalking me. I think it's TikTok. It, it came up, a, a reel came up, a short video, a, a beautiful young lady, maybe 19, maybe 25, real quickly, oh, you got to practice becoming your own banker. Let me show you how to do it with an IUL. And, and she mentions guarantees. They're just the very verbiage that she's using is confirming that she does not know how IULs work beyond however she was trained by the IMO that she works for, right? Okay. Was she even an agent? I mean, is a paid spokesperson doing a TikTok? 
who knows on yeah. TikTok? Are you kidding? Let's just go start an LLC and there's one licensed individual in there and everybody can share revenues yeah. and collaborate. Right. Um, but she also said, and I followed her, right? Cause this is like gold, right? You don't even have to pay the loans back. Let me show you how the loan works. And then she's talking about just low interest, low loan interest rates that don't exist, have never existed, even in the lowest interest rate environment. And then, I mean, she just taking the buzzwords from the infinite banking footprint and applying it to universal life and then adding in all of the marketing catchwords, phrases, you know, these drive by innuendos. But she's sincere. Yeah. You know, she I, I, I've come to accept that there's a market for that there. Exactly. Exactly. It's part and partial of the thinking, the short term thinking. It fits right in the people that are attracted to that. Right. It, that's attractive. Mm-hmm. There is a market. It's not going to go away and, and it's going to exist. Right. The and whenever the agents say hey, you don't have to pay the loan back, you know, theoretically, that works if nothing sure. goes wrong. Yeah. Right. And that's still theoretical. Yeah. Right. Well, what are they? What are they going to do? I'm not going to repay the loan. I'm just going to, you know, stick a life insurance policy in the middle of the cash flow. And I mean, that has come out of my mouth previously, but that can't be taken out of context. Right. What's the first thing they're going to do? Well, I got to pay a hundred thousand dollars in your example in the first year. I don't have a hundred thousand. I had to borrow the hundred thousand to get there anyway. I'm sure not going to have it in a year or two. I don't need the ability to pay that, and I'm going to collateralize every bit of it as soon as possible. Right. Oh, and then I'm going to go start an LLC and, and form a trust and get it complicated. So then you get the complexity, which, you know, infers value. No. And then I'm going to collateralize it as fast as possible, as much as possible. The first thing they're going to do is not repay the loan. That Actually, that'll be the second. They won't pay the 100000 if they even had the contractual right to do that because they could barely do it in the first year. They're sure not going to pay it in the second year and beyond. And I got to get to that crossover point where the total premium paid and the total accumulated cash value equal because that's the only goal right, of, of a policy. And the policy is just part of all of these revenue streams that you can go create. I mean, it gets so complicated. But it fits into the thinking. I'm not going to make a loan repayment. Okay, then you talk about the taxation of life insurance. If those things ever survive long enough to have a, a value above the basis, which I've seen lots of illustrations of, there are books that I will not use in my practice because this very thing that I'm speaking of mm-hmm. proves itself, right? And the example being, you know, if the individual lived almost as long as Nelson Nash and you've got all these millions of dollars in outstanding loans because you never had to repay a loan, right? And then it ends, the policy lapses before you died. Now it's not a life insurance policy, tax, right? It's treated as a MET. Mm-hmm. $900,000 tax liability in that one year yeah. from all of the previous loans. All of that kind of thinking fits exactly, exactly into why the market exists. Yes, yes. And the contrast is that Dave, in this example, in the essay, if he didn't want to pay anything past that 10th year, he doesn't have to. Perfect. You know, he can shut down premium. And You mean he has a contractual right not to pay a premium? He has that option, yeah. that ability, the financial ability not to pay a premium? And still not be a mech and still probably take income, passive income. 150 grand a year from age 70 to 90 is what yeah. it would have supported. 
and, and how he's 50 ish. I don't, I don't want to know the details. And, and we're going out team that would put him at 60 ish. Yeah. And so what if he takes a vacation with this lovely wife, well-deserved and, you know, and after you've traveled the world a few times, it's like, uh, my point here is somebody, most people want to be productive. He has been productive. He's not going to change the way he lives. So if he starts another business and sells it, then he can pay a premium if he wants to. After the vacation of two years or three or whatever, traveling the world, all of a sudden I'm bored. You know, that sand's a different white from the previous (laughs) sand. You know, all the alcohol tastes the same. All the venues look the same. The food's about the same. Yeah. Ooh, another airplane. Yeah. (laughs) And And the other thing is, it's not all or nothing. Right, he could pay some of it. It's a capacity. He has the you know use as much as you want. So you're saying with all the money, all the capital in the premium deposit fund, he can say, "Hey, life insurance company, don't withdraw from that premium deposit fund." Well, in this and I per- can pay a premium. In this particular case, if there's money in the PDF, it's going to be the, that annual premium will be paid from it. But after the exhaustion of that okay. PDF. When he's, you know, he's 10 years into the contract, entering year 11, he's got yeah. base, there's term rider premium, there's PUA. He could pay, you know, we're talking about continuing to pay the maximum or pay nothing. Well, there's a in-between, which is pay some, you know, pay some of the base and the term or some of the PUA. I mean, and I kind of list in one of the paragraphs all the different options mm-hmm. that he's got so many options. And there's such a range of flexibility and freedom that I think is foreign to people who have who have just been indoctrinated, not to, to no fault of their own, really indoctrinated in this prior way of thinking where, you know, we say, OK, well, the premium is going to be 10 grand a year. OK, well, I've got to pay 10 <coughs> grand a year forever. It's like, yeah. no, like there's really so much more nuance. And so, like, you know, this and I have I've had a couple calls uh, with new clients this past week. You know, had interacted with other agents, and this is still happening. And part of me is like sad for the industry. The other part of me is like, well, good, I can differentiate. Uh, but you know, the blow up the inbox right away with the illustrations. Yeah. You know, and and you're not telling me that you've communicated the flexibility and the the distinction between the right and the obligation to the policy owner. Well, uh, that assumes can, that they know, yeah, or understand, yeah. or even care. To, yeah. Right? Yeah. And I'm sure. Uh, so I'm not trying to be any individual. I'm mean, just generally the agent's mentality. You know, they've been surrounded in noise their whole career. Yeah. I mean, this kind of thing, this kind of setup with the PDF, I mean, I'm looking out at it and I'm like, man, this is, it's going to be so good. <laughs> you now, know, wait a minute. So just leave the money there, leave it alone, let it do its thing. Yeah. You know, and the other thing we haven't touched on is the liquidity. As that money yeah. goes from the PDF into the policy, that cash value is building. So it's not like this was another one of the concerns was, you know, are we locking up the two million? It's like, no, you're not. There's a rising liquidity there. The cash value is going up as premium comes from that PDF over into the cash value. You can collateralize the contract, take a policy loan, collateralized by the cash value. And as, as the years go by, as more premium goes in, cash value gets bigger. It grows more efficiently every year. It becomes more and more liquid the further you go out. And so, because one of his concerns was, what if there's an opportunity? I need to use right. this capital to go do something, right? Because that's a competing alternative too. I need to Absolutely. go invest, right? Capitalization versus investing. Well, this takes us back to the same principle that this is not mutually exclusive. We're capitalizing first, in fact, in order to invest better later. 
Right, we're starting a capital generation engine, building a place to put money. The revenue from the investments has to go somewhere. Might as well be to, I don't know, your own asset that you own and control, the value of which is growing every year in a tax-deferred environment, accessible, tax-free. Why wouldn't it go the investment has a revenue. Yeah, big Which, assumption, uh, but hey, I, I'm I appreciate willing, your positivity. You know, for, <laughs> you know, I, people who, there's people who talk about all the things, and I, the, the ratio of people who talk about getting into real estate to the mm. ones who actually do it is a little heavy, a little one-sided. You know, oh, I'm going to think I'm going to get into real estate. Okay. All right. You know, but then there's people who have actually done it, right? I actually built the business, sold the business. And so I, you know, and I see the numbers, you know, the checks there. And so I'm willing to grant him a little more rope than I might otherwise. <laughs> so, yeah, and he's already got, he's already started other types of enterprises. And those, that cash was going to have to go somewhere. Yeah. I think once, you know, uh, because there is liquidity to the PDF, it has ramifications. Each one is different. Each PDF is different. But, I mean, it's once you understand, see the numbers, understand the cash flows, the mechanics of the policy, the construct of the solution, um, you know, the first year is the least amount of liquidity is the most inefficient time period of a policy. And, of course, if you're new, you know, that's very intimidating. And it doesn't typically take long, you know, one year, six months, um, two years. It's, oh my gosh! Of course, I didn't pay a big enough premium. I can pay more premium. Yeah. I that that illiquidity, you know, the loss of liquidity is temporary, right? And once you understand the mechanics of a of a policy, you know, you own one. The first annual statement comes in. You don't the, the numbers. I mean, we can all read math and you know see the numbers, but we're not accustomed to the accounting of a life insurance company on a life insurance policy my point here is that that loss of liquidity diminishes quickly especially on an annual cash flow basis and and oh my gosh if i can access the money that i understood that i can and understand how a loan function and, and i understand how i can control that and it integrates with me personally and my cash flows or professionally it's like in the second year, you're looking around and it's like, how much can I pay? Yeah. You know, which the more you dig into life insurance, in my opinion, properly structured, mutual company, pays a dividend, it's you literally and physically can't pay enough premium. Wow, you got to get by the under, you got to get by the space between your ears first, but once you get by that, then you've got to get by the underwriters and the suitability and you know, the National Association of Insurance Commissioners, how much can you have in force? How much can you pay in premium? What's the insurable interest? And how much, you, I mean, all of that, right, are challenges. Once you, like, are vibing and you get it, you see it. Yeah, that, all that comes it. after you say yes. <laughs> right. I mean, you, you know, your confidence level goes up. And, oh, my gosh, it's really, then you almost become skittish. You're like, well, am I paying too much, James? You know, should I really be thinking about it comes naturally when you should expand. It doesn't necessarily come naturally how to expand properly. Right. Um, which, you know, an educated agent and advisor would, you know, kind of help through that thinking process. But it, 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 it's just another attribute or characteristic or result from paying life insurance premium, understanding it. And, and then the 
experiencing it, the confidence level goes up. It's like, oh my gosh, can I even get past the underwriter? Am I thinking right? And the answer is yes. If you have a need for capital and you're going to have a need for capital, um, and you are, it's like, yeah. So how much is too much? Mm-hmm. All right. How much is too much? Well, you know, and, and I've talked about the the arbitrary numbers and retirement planning, financial planning. How about until the, you know, I can't, literally, I can't pay a premium. I don't have a cash flow dedicated to, or I can dedicate to being exposed to a dividend forever, right? Um, can't, I, I just don't have it. You know, I've been creative. I don't want to take on the leverage, whatever the case may be. Or the underwriter says no. Mm-hmm. All right. That's good enough for me. When the underwriter tells you, you know, fat boy, you're too fat. <laughs> You know, yeah, yeah. I'm excited for these for these folks. I mean, the if, especially when you start looking at the late life passive cash flow picture. So start at age 50, I assume passive cash flow age 70 to 90. I mean, it's 150 grand. The policy would would easily support. Did you just, illustrate loans in that uh, premium or? offset? So this was uh, uh, partial surrenders. Okay. Yeah. Uh, just for the sake of it, you know, again, sure. he has options, take whatever he wants. Um, but yeah, well, let's see, what was it? It was 150 grand over 20 years, $3 million. So you could take $3 million in late life distributions in total, all tax-free, age 70 to 90. He only put in two. Okay, so he got back 150% of what he paid in. And he had the use and control of all that cash value in between. Well, that's not even in the article. What he does with that or not you know oh he's already off to other businesses and other ventures right yeah or there's the fact that there's a death benefit behind all that oh we didn't factor in the cost of the death benefit oh yeah and then all the savings on interest that he'll enjoy by not having to rely on bankers for the business line of credit and the car loans and the next house or whatever oh all that where's that on the graph approval yeah not on the graph didn't have to take the risk of a market or whatever he just has ample cash flow how does that make ample capital and cash flow but uh, how does that make you feel how would you rather be (laughs) undercapitalized and needing money and somebody else got to prove the access to that money or would you just rather have a big old pile of capital and it's like yeah i'll get to it whenever i see the appropriate opportunity and i won't ask anybody yeah i mean oh your blood pressure goes down your cortisol levels go down oh yeah i mean there's so many oh wait it bypassed probate too Hmm. what you didn't have to put all that and you didn't have to tangle that up with a trust wait you didn't have to talk to a cpa to really want to pay my attorney though yeah well it's complex (laughs) right and that was just with the two million yeah do nothing else. Generate no cash flow over the intervening 10 years. Can't pay a premium in year 11. Yeah. Then you, you just have to suffer the fools that you share it with and their opinions. <laughs> but then, wait, no, you're not making it independent upon you, right? So I, I know you're going to, well, you know, I believe you're going to be here in 10 years, you know, God willing, and I believe he is, and you're able and you are. So um, does he understand well enough? I mean, my point here being is what he's not going to be dependent upon you. He's uh, not going to be dependent upon the financial guru or a banker or whomever, right? You can actually encourage and lead the way and show through education and understanding and experience how to be independent. Mm-hmm. What's that word? Yeah. I mean, there's so much that wait. And, and the mere fact that, um, so his wife may be, or spouse may be, uh, you know, a little bit hesitant. What are we going to do in year 11? He don't want to pay a premium in year 11. Okay. 
it's done. You know, they've started and they see the cash values go up. They see that their liquidity is not compromised. They see the capital that they do have access to. Maybe I can enjoy that white sand beach a little more. Mm -hmm. I'm not worried about that. Yeah. This is a full, I mean, I know, don't use life insurance for retirement planning, dum-dum. This is a full late-life passive cash flow plan, okay, in a tax-free environment that's private property of the individual. And it's on a much firmer grounding in terms of predictability and expectations than is something that's market-correlated. I didn't publish one payment at age 50. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, How many events in your life are you going to have $2 million coming in or $4 million or $100,000 or whatever it is? It's okay to do something correct with that. You know, you did a Facebook post a couple of several weeks ago because I wrote out a response, but I never, I never said that. Yeah, you didn't post it. It's okay. It's like the, uh, that thinking, you know, and I think you were talking about an investment guru at a place that you were at and he was just talking loud and bashing things that he doesn't understand and whatever. Whole life insurance. Out at dinner and I hear, you know, a few chairs over, the young guy dressed nice, whatever, talking to somebody else and the other guy that was talking to the young one said, you know, I'm, I'm over here selling you. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm telling my, my buddies all about you. You know, you gotta, got to come tell him. He's got this cash value thing. I told He's him. talking to you? No, no, talking this is buddy? the other individual talking okay, to the young guy. Okay, I got it, I got it. And so that, that conversation, I'm listening to this conversation happen. And in response to that prompting, this financial guru, conventional advisor, you know, comes out with the slogan, you know, don't, you shouldn't use life insurance for retirement planning, you know, and it's always, I mean, the words are just like dripping. And this is the part that really irritates me. And I had to like dial back some of my language in the post because like, <laughs> it gets me, it, I really don't like this. It's like rhetorical bullying. And it's like, yeah. I know your game. Like you're not, you're not being clever or cute because you can be condescending and paternalistic like i know exactly what time it is but this it's always dripping with this like you stupid more you know you shouldn't use life insurance for retirement but those are those are different words life insurance should be life insurance by which they mean death benefit and retirement you should you should use retirement vehicles for retirement planning those two are the same words it's so condescending and it and and, and yet at the same time totally obfuscating Right. So it's like, you dumb idiot, but oh, don't let me tell you anything about why what I'm implying is true. Right? You should just accept it, Rube. You know, you, yeah, it, it's so, but then people take it because they feel like they don't know enough about finding this person's an expert. He's saying it confidently. It's got this intonation. Oh, he's got nice hair. He's wearing a nice, wearing a, and then we just accept it. As everybody else is doing it. Everybody knows it, but me, I'm the guy who doesn't know that you I don't feel, use it. <laughs> I feel dumb. Yeah, maybe, you know, maybe yeah. this is, I, this, this person is revealing this simple truth that's just never been put to me like this before is, is what the vibe is. Sure. And it's like, oh, I'm like, can I get the check, please? Like, get me. Uh, you couldn't get out of there fast uh, enough. Because <laughs> like, he was looking over for people, other people to, to talk support to. Support or yeah. beat up uh, to re- support him. More potential clients. Oh, oh that's looking. how he attracts clients. <laughs> he's you know, looking around for yeah. more. Oh, and I'm gosh. like, please don't start talking. Yeah. Um, <laughs> he had to look up to you, didn't he? Yeah. But here, here, I'll just share what, what I wrote, but didn't didn't send. You know, and, and it was, this was going to be a response to that post. You know, I would use the word discount. 
but that would assume consideration was giving to the banking function. Therefore, the glaring and fatal flaw, in my opinion, in financial planning is not discounting the banking function. It's a complete lack of knowledge that one can actually control the banking function as it relates to them and profit from doing so, especially over one's lifetime. So the flaw, right, the lack of knowledge, coupled with a hyper-focus on a single characteristic or component or relationship between numbers of a financial product, you know, like life insurance, what the premium you pay, what's the relationship to the death benefit, or what's the dividend, you know, the hyper-focus on a single component of life insurance, right? Um, this seems to me the to be the solid bedrock in which these types of sound bites and cliches firmly rest. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I, I believe that. And then you add ego, ignorance, and arrogance that exists in the average financial professional. You add that with the mix of the lack of knowledge, the understanding that that you can actually can, can control the banking function. You put all those together, and then we have all the required ingredients to build and maintain and perpetuate a disappointing financial struggle for yourself and your future prodigy. You know, so the the front is broad and uh, job security is solid because you're, all you're doing is pushing back the frontiers of ignorance or expanding the frontiers of knowledge. And that attitude, those words, sound bites, cliches that everybody hears over and over through all the media, through print, radio, TV, all the quote unquote financial salespeople that are unlicensed and unregulated. And I'm not for regulation, I promise. Um, that's how they get by. Everybody knows it, but you, whole life is bad. It's terrible. Yeah. The agent gets paid a big old commission. The life insurance company, that evil entity, keeps all of the cash value when you die. And they're charging you interest to borrow. Every statement there is wrought with ignorance. But it sounds good enough. With confidence and arrogance, it can come across as, uh, well, he obviously knows what he's talking to. And it's like, yeah, maybe a health insurance claim didn't get paid. Maybe an automobile insurance claim didn't get paid. So all of the insurance companies have, are bad. Yeah. Yeah. That you got to have the ignorance. And you got to have the arrogance. And you got to have the bravado. Right? And you got to have... It's heavy on the ignorance <laughs> for that to work. And then and then what have you done? You're dependent upon the financial markets, whatever they are. You're dependent upon the interest rates. You're dependent upon the third party banker. Every one of those entities that control those functions are getting wealthy. Mm -hmm. Every one of them at your expense. And then teach your children to do the same thing. Yeah. And your grandchildren to do the same thing. Yeah, it's perfect. Yeah, I can't think I, of a better solution. I think a lot of it has to do with a really an unwillingness to dig deep and, and come to a you know firm, decisive view about what's right and what's wrong in the business. You know, there's this attitude that anything goes, the consumer's always right, whatever they want is correct. You know, I'm just here to serve. It's this kind of innocent I'm collaborating. Uh, performative naivete, right? Where it's like, oh, I'm just here to be helpful it's like okay you know it's kind of deceptive half true compassionate narcissism i don't think kind of that thing. that was his attitude was it oh this like this it. kid that no i no i think very much so i think mm -hmm. yeah yeah and it's it's a it's a convenient route to take right Absolutely. like 
everything is fairy dust and unicorns. I want to be helpful. My heart's in the right place. I can do well helping you. Everybody's better off. I've got these compliance approved, HR approved slogans and marketing materials to support what it is I've been told to tell you to say, Mm -hmm. and everybody's going to be better for it. You know, uh, it's all packaged. There's a bow on it. Um, and, and the good intentions are there. I mean, I really do assume angelic intention. I'm sure he's a nice kid. We probably have good conversations talking about anything other than money. Right. (laughs) Uh, but the problem is, is that that doesn't have anything to do with whether or not the underlying proposals are are proper and correct or well-suited or not. And that's what irritates me. And when you, when you, then when you go back and you add even more of the pomp and circumstance, the smoke and mirrors, the click funnels, the online marketing stuff, it's just like, now you're making it worse. You know, it's, it's the, and I like in that Facebook post you mentioned, it's no coincidence that the only textbook published by the Board of Certified Financial Planners is on the psychology of sales. Yep. Not economics, not financial theory, not history of thought, not anything substantive. No, no. The psychology of sales. How to talk to somebody to get them to say yes or to get them to change their mind when they want to take money out in a down market. Right? That is... That the, the 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 certified the board of certified financial planners, the allegedly top designation in the financial planning industry, is primarily interested in psychologizing to get you to say yes. If that's not a problem, that I mean, what else could what would be worse, right? It's like it's like a, a you know the the board the the bar the state bar and attorney bar like specializing in teaching attorneys. Like how to manipulate clients rather than how to argue legal cases, you know, or doctors, you know, imagine a medical board publishing textbooks telling the, the doctors how to tell their patients to just say yes to the medication rather than to treat the underlying illness. They don't do that. And in, <laughs> but in, in finance, sure. not only is that what they do, it's like, they're proud of it. Like, yeah. join our organization so you can do webinars and live trainings and get our textbook and get discount to go study the psychology of sales. I mean, that is, if you spend a little bit of fraction of time thinking about it, I it's very difficult for me not to end up at, well, that's kind of morally reprehensible. Like, so you're, you're you know, you're professionally a part of an organization, the purpose of which is to help you help people say yes for the sake of it, right? Not because there's this underlying compelling economic or financial theory. You know, that that's just a, a, a sideline, a sidebar provided in the, you know, the addendum or whatever, the special marketing material. It's all about getting you to say yes. That is like, ugh, you know, like get away from me. <laughs> you know i'm gonna keep my mouth shut <laughs> <laughs> anyway oh uh, all right that was fun yeah. so anything else that's been what's on my come to the live event october 21st oh for clients if you're a client come to the event uh, well there's a couple of months there you have an opportunity if you're not a client yeah whatever yeah. 
that's my click funnel. Enough time for there's a, a tripwire somewhere <laughs> hidden in there, and, you know, and the paywall. And uh, what do you call that? Whenever you know the tripwire just gets them going, and then there's a small purchase, and then a little bit larger purchase until you find the big Kahuna. You know, the twenty nine thousand oh, dollar sure sell that we'll discount today, today only for you know nine thousand or ten thousand. Yeah. We'll finance it. What do you what do you call that? I have no idea. Marketing. I'm sure <laughs> there's a thing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I, I, I really did. I, I really did have fun. So me too. Thanks for listening. Bye, y'all. Thank you for joining us on the Banking with Life podcast. If you're watching on YouTube, make sure to like and subscribe, and click on that little notification bell. Otherwise, join us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher for weekly content.